Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. Hi, Sam. Hi, Lizzie. How are you feeling today? I feel like I'm happy, but about to be sad. I am about to tell you the saddest tale <laughs> you've ever heard. No, this probably won't even be the saddest episode we've done. Lizzie, I implore you to just take a break from your depression and do like bring it on or something. I want you to know when I am in my depression, the only thing that will get me out is to see more depressing things than I. <laughs> You're like, damn, I have it really good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so before we launch into this epic tale of sadness and gayness, uh, we just want to take a quick moment to throw some gratitude towards you, listener, and towards our Patreon supporters. Um, if you have not yet checked out our Patreon, we have lots of cool stuff on there. Bonus content, extra episodes, stickers. Oh, yeah, we just got stickers in the mail. Oh, yeah, our stickers are cute. So you can find us at patreon.com slash textualpod. But let's get into it. It's going to be bleak. Yeah. So, no, I'm we're going to have fun. This is the Olympics of sadness. <laughs> I like sad movies. Like that's You do? <laughs> you. Sorry, I, I couldn't contain it. I live for them. And especially if there's boys kissing. Boys kissing and it's a book. Uh, oh, man, this was just dangling in front of me. I've actually been looking forward to seeing this movie for a while, and I bought the book. Here, you can see it. Not only can I see it, it's covered in annotations. I annotated the absolute shit out of this book. Um, I really enjoyed it, and we'll talk a little bit about the differences between the book and the movie. But, Sam, you and I went to go see this movie in theaters opening weekend. <laughs> um, it didn't feel like it. We were the only two people in the screening that yeah, day. Yeah, it was a private screening i actually paid for us to have a place uh, to ourselves ah uh, yes lizzie got us a, a screening <laughs> just the two of us and um yeah i i still don't know how i feel about this movie yeah how did you feel leaving the theater i was like a little torn because i think this movie did a lot of things really really well it feel kind of nitpicky to me but mm -hmm. there's just something there it left like a taste in my mouth that i don't think i liked i can't exactly place it but it seems like there's a lot of things in the sauce that I didn't care for. Were there any elements of the film, whether it's the production or the story that stood out to you as like positive things? Oh yeah. I mean, tons. The The set design was always impeccable. I mean, I think the cin cinematography was really um, effective. Emma Corrin, just for you listener, Emma Corrin uses they, them pronouns, but when we reference their character in this film will be using she, her pronouns, but their character, I think they did a fantastic job, but also the character was pretty bad. So those are the things. That's why I'm feeling a little torn. Like every upside, there's kind of a downside, yeah. you know? Also, Harry Styles is in this, and I don't know how I feel about him either. Do you know how you feel about him? Like in general or in this film? Generally. Generally, I haven't really thought too much about Harry Styles. I enjoy his music. I enjoy his appearance. I enjoy, like, this little person that kind of plays with makeup and jewelry and gender fluidity. And I know there's, like, a lot of controversy about him right now, especially with Don't Worry Darling. But I, I frankly don't give a fuck. I thought he did better in this movie than I thought he would. Mm -hmm. He by no means did a poor job. And I was a little skeptical of... The casting at first, after having read the book, it just didn't fit the image of Tom I had in my head. But once the movie started and I let that go, I, I really did enjoy his performance. And I think his name, though, like when associated with this movie is like the only thing people talk about with this movie. 
I'm yeah. kind of sick of it already. Yeah, I mean, he got so shat on for Don't Worry Darling, and I imagine he's going to get like picked apart for this film as well. But he's not a bad actor, but he is just in this strange place where like, if he starts acting, of course he's going to be acting with A-listers because like, he's a huge name on a poster. And so it just makes him look worse when he does just okay. Right. When he's not like, he's not even the star of this movie. Mm. Like the Tom character is probably the least consequential of the three between Mary and Patrick and Tom. Yeah. We don't get his perspective as much and we don't get to even hear from him much. Mm -hmm. And it's the same as the book as well. And when you do hear from him, he's an asshole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's like selfish and unlikable. Um, so I think it was interesting to cast someone who I think like at face value is a very likable person. Like he appears likable. He. Never really has any, like, abrasive edges in the media. You know, he definitely puts his foot in his mouth for sure. should probably just say less. <laughs> that, if I can give any advice to Harry Styles, it would be that. But just the way that his stardom, like, skyrocketed this film just made me really uncomfortable. Like, he is the first build name on the poster, first build name in the credits. Mm -hmm. His face is on the cover of the book. And I just think, like, I understand why A-listers are put forward in the marketing marketing to get people to see the film. Yeah. But then when you get to the film itself and your butt is in the seat, it kind of misleads you into what you're about to watch because the story isn't about him. Yeah. I mean, before I know we haven't gotten to production yet, but I have a question. Like, do you know if he signed on first and then the rest of the actors or if the actors were in place and then he got on? I'm not really sure, to be honest. I know that the director, Michael Grandage, had worked before with Emma Curran, with David Dawson, and with, I think, most, if not all, of the older actors as well. Uh, I don't know the order of how everyone came on, but I imagine that Michael Grandage probably had more say in the other cast than he did with Harry Styles. Yeah. But I don't know for sure. That makes sense because you hear that, like, Boz Lerman turned down Harry Styles for the role of Elvis. and this was before Don't Worry Darling or this film came out and everyone's like, how could you turn down Harry Styles? And then you watch <laughs> Elvis and you're like, oh, the camera's on Elvis 99% of the time. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I think it was a good choice for him to turn down Harry Styles in that case. And But this seems more like a safer bet. Like you're saying, he's not really in, in hardly of the scenes. And when he is, he's like not saying full sentences mostly, <laughs> you know? I think he delivers... He's kind of like Ryan Gosling to me. Like, the less <laughs> he speaks, the better he does. And not yeah. to say that he has, like, terrible dialogue delivery or anything, but I do think that, like, the enigma of that person and just the way he physically looks, it allows people to kind of project onto him a little bit, which is essentially Tom's, as a character's, entire relationship with Marion and Patrick. They're both kind of, like, projecting what they want onto him and trying to envision this perfect life with this man who's just literally not able to provide that <laughs> to emotionally anyone. yeah not able to meet them where they are so it's it is interesting and I think for that reason it was a good cast and I enjoyed watching him I really did and frankly all of the cast I really enjoyed in this film so with that let's get into some members of the production and what went on behind the scenes so one thing I got to say, and this doesn't happen often, but one thing I was really happy about the more research I did into the production and who was involved in the making of this movie is how many queer people were involved in bringing it to the screen. So Let's go. The director, the screenwriter, the two key producers, the intimacy coordinator, which I think is important, 
And three of the main core cast are all openly queer. And for all I know, the freaking gaffer, the grips, the <laughs> catering. But a lot of these really important people making this queer love story for once are queer. And I think that that's really cool and really nice. noteworthy. Yeah. So more about those people themselves. So like I said, My Policeman is based on a novel written and released in 2012 by a woman named Bethan Roberts. 2012. 2012. Wow. Okay, that's newer than I thought it was. And by a woman. Okay, mm -hmm. work. Yeah. So yeah, Beth Ann Roberts released this book in 2012. And basically right away, two of the key film producers, Robbie Rogers and Greg Berlanti, who are in fact married, Love. Um, found the book and instantly started to try to find funding for it. Though, you know, it took almost 10 years to do that. Damn. I mean, this is one of the things I didn't know how I felt about this film. There are a lot of stories like this, mm -hmm. almost too many. And I'm happy with any amount of queer representation I can get. But if you're getting Harry Styles, why are you telling us, like, why are you telling this story in particular? I get that the story drove the production, not the other way around. They weren't like, we yeah. need gay stories. They were like, this story needs to be told. But I, I mean, I don't want to spoil too much of the plot, but like, this is not dissimilar to Carol mm -hmm. or even Boys Don't Cry. Like, these people are in love. They're in a time and place where they can't be in love. Something bad, really bad happens to one of them, either with the law, either with their body, a little bit of both in this case. And it was like I was clenching my fist, just like waiting for it to happen and just being like, why couldn't we just do something different? Yeah, it's like I'm so familiar with this dread feeling mm -hmm. of like knowing something's going to go wrong. And granted, for once, no one like died at the end, but also like it wasn't a super happy ending. I mean, he has a stroke that renders him completely incapacitated. Yeah. Like he's He's ba his quality of life is basically zero. So, like, yeah. is he dead? I don't know. Like, is he? does he have much longer to live after this? I mean, in a storytelling, like, figurative way, the writer pretty much did kind of remove all of his agency. So, like, yeah. is he dead figuratively? Yeah, that's a good point. And part of that particular element of the plot, the fact that Patrick's character ends up having a stroke and unable to speak, unable to move, you know, that harkens like we'll get back to that later about why that was a direct choice but it was a direct choice for a reason but whenever the screenwriter ron nice and nice water how do you spell it uh n-y-s-w-a-n-e-r nice wainer <laughs> i'm so sorry but he's rich and successful so i guess it worked out a boy oh, named he's Sue. wonderful man yeah no he worked out so well but when director Michael Grandage and writer Ron Neiswainer were asked why they wanted to do this project in the first place. So for some context, both of these men are a little bit older and they have memories of growing up in this time in the 50s when this was happening. And so I, I do think that this film was kind of like brought forward and heralded by people who wanted to just make sure we didn't forget the past. And I do think that is important because I, I literally, whenever I left the movie the first time I saw it without you, I was like, I wrote in my notebook, like, why do we need to keep telling these really sad stories? Like yeah. you're saying, this is one of like a whole stack of sad gay stories I've seen. And time, time specific. Time specific. Yeah. But I, I do think that maybe this is not necessarily for, like, young people like me who were born into a world where homosexuality was hardly questioned and not illegal, and more for maybe the people who 
didn't grow up at that time. I mean, all three of the older actors are from the UK and literally lived in a time where if you were gay, you could go to prison. So, you know, I, I think that then casting Harry Styles kind of shoves this film in a totally different direction in terms of audience, but mm -hmm. its intention behind it, I think that's kind of where that's coming from. That point actually reminds me of like, you know, saying maybe this was made for a different generation of people to appreciate and then you put Harry Styles at the front and now they're like fucked um, because a lot of like maybe Gen Zers are going to come and see it. It reminds me of what's been happening recently on TikTok with Steve Lacey. And if you listener don't know who Steve Lacey is, he's like an indie musician who originally was uh, the guitarist from the internet and has gone to have an incredibly successful solo career. And one of his songs, Bad Habit, is circulating all over TikTok. It's like one of the most viral sounds. And so he's gotten this huge crowd of Gen Zs coming to his audience and only knowing the like 30 second chorus from this one song. Ugh. So there's clips all over the internet of him like putting the microphone out at the end of that chorus and it's dead silence. And because he's aware of the fact that these are all people that haven't really experienced his music before. And he was in New Orleans recently and someone threw a disposable camera and hit him directly in the face. During the show? During the show. That's so rude. So he grabbed the camera. He got security to grab the camera. He hit the stage and, and like broke the camera and um, just walked off. Dude. See, we live in this age where we can like push all these different kind of media, pieces of media out to like whatever niche audience we need. But it always has its backlash. Mm -hmm. And like this film hasn't been out long enough to know if it's been successful there are no box office numbers yet that I could find. There's not even budget information that I can find, but I can guarantee, like, trying to angle the film in this one way is going to put it in the lap of an audience that may or may not, I mean, the jury's still out, appreciate it for what it's at. But getting back to that Steve Lacey story, that is just fucked up. And I appreciate him for being, like, <laughs> rubbing it in the audience faces of being like, you, you don't know my know. music. <laughs> yeah, none of y'all have actually listened to me. Y'all are lining up out the door to see me for this 30-second bit you saw on TikTok. Not to go too deep into this, but a band that I used to be obsessed with in high school called Pierce the Veil have been touring. And they have a song that sound is trending on TikTok as well. And now tickets to their show are $300. I saw them when I was, like, 14 for... I think ten dollars. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. that was at the height of their fame, so I thought. And now they're like forty years old, and yeah. their show is like super expensive. So it's not to say that younger audiences can't come in with a fresh lens and appreciate art for what it's worth, but it does alienate or push out audiences that have been there maybe for longer. With who it does push out other members of the audience. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see like the public opinion of this film. Um, I forgot to mention that when. We are recording this. It's currently still in theaters, but it is also available to stream now on Amazon Prime as of November 4th. So the critic reviews and even more importantly, audience reviews are going to start coming in. And I guess we'll see who who found the film, who connected with it, who didn't, and how many fucking times they're going to mention Harry Styles in their reviews. <laughs> so back to the book and also back to the actual story behind the story. So... It probably won't surprise you, even though there was no, like, title at the beginning saying, this is based on a true story. But this is based on actual events that took place in the same similar time frame. So Bethan's novel, My Policeman, is based on the love story of novelist Ian e. Forster and his lover, a policeman named Bob Buckingham. 
Um, you're probably familiar with E.M. Forrester's work. He was a British writer who wrote many novels early in his life, including A Passage to India, Howard's End, Maurice, and A Room with the View, um, which is the work I'm most familiar with. Edward Morgan Forrester was born in England in 1879. What the fuck? He was an openly gay man, which usually people who are born, like, that far back in history, you're like, oh, he was rumored to be a gay man. But in this case, there's, like, definitely enough evidence. And though he never actually came out publicly, it's, like, very clear that he was queer. I only say what the fuck because I have a hard time understanding time in, like, big numbers. Like, I don't know. When I say big numbers, you know, like when people are like, it's an 8,000 gallon pool. And you're like, great. What the fuck does that mean? Is that mean? a large pool or a small pool? <laughs> but there's like this idea that once things reach like a certain capacity, like the human mind doesn't know what to do with them. Like, I don't know what the fuck 1872 is. It sounds so ignorant. I'm sorry. But like, I don't even know. That was before cars. I think, yeah, before cars, maybe there's electricity. <laughs> Lee, do you know if that was before uh, cars? Post-Civil War, right? Post-Civil War, way before World War One and Two. Yep. So, car, But so cars <laughs> existed. Uh, no, probably cars were, Model T was like 1900s. Right. Early this was like before 1900s, planes. Maybe. I don't know. I'm, I actually don't know. <laughs> the right podcast for that <laughs> sorry basically this man and he lived to be v- quite old i think into his 80s and he <laughs> he saw things change like you would not believe so as like a young man he was pretty well off was really well educated started writing novels when he was like 26 and kind of knew right away that he was different he never in- had any relationships with women in his life period Um, But he did have a huge network of friends, and a lot of those friends were very influential in the arts and literature. People like Edward Carpenter, Christopher Urshwood, and Virginia Woolf. And then whenever he started creating work, namely one of his novels is like explicitly about a homosexual relationship and also has a happy ending. Yay! And that book is Maurice, which maybe you've seen the movie of the same title that came out in like the 80s, in 87 actually. It starred like Hugh Grant, Rupert Graves. Um, But it was like very much openly about men loving men. And in the end, the two protagonists end up together. So he never even attempted to get it published. And it wasn't published until posthumously after he passed. Um, But he did circulate it amongst all of his friends. And Virginia Woolf gave notes on it. Wow, that's awesome. What'd she say? Like, too gay. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? But in his manuscript, written in the the margins, he had a note to himself that said, publishable, but worth it, question mark. (laughs) I was like, damn, because at this time in history. just like me, dude. (laughs) For real. (laughs) We're like editing this podcast episode and we're like, publishable, but worth it. At what cost? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, at this time, homosexuality had been illegal in England for hundreds of years. And in the 1950s, basically after World War II, for whatever reason, which I'm sure some historian could help point out why, there was like a sharp increase in prosecutions and sentences for gay men. Hmm. For some reason, that was, I think there was a couple of like really high profile cases that like brought the attention of like the problem of gay men to the government. So, such an insane thing to say. So, 
to combat that and to kind of like figure out a way to deal with this problem, the government put together a committee. So the Department Committee of Homosexual Offenses and Prostitution was formed. Okay, Umbridge. Giving terrible vibes. It's giving Umbridge vibes. It's giving like control vibes. Mm -hmm. Um, And also like the lumping of like queer people and sex workers and how those were both kind of like unmentionables (laughs) at this time is... It's crazy. It's reminding me of in the Pirates of the Caribbean episode where you're talking about that island where p- gay pirates <laughs> yes. would have gay sex. So they brought in sex workers and then everyone just ended up having sex with each other. Exactly. <laughs> it's like trying to solve the problem by throwing more problems at it. Yeah. And everyone's just like having a great time yeah, and enjoying revelry. sex. Yeah. And something quite similar happened with this because ultimately this committee and, and their recommendations made to the government led to homosexuality being decriminalized in England. Nice. However, it wasn't, like, the prettiest way to go about it. Like, whenever I read that fact, I was like, oh, great, because basically the committee convened for many months, talked to many homosexual men, took interviews, and wrote a report called the Wolfenden Report that came out in 1957 that basically gave this recommendation to the government that they should decriminalize homosexuality for consenting adults over the age of 21. And I was I read that and I was like great. But when you the more I read into like how they were going about this process and just how they were talking to people and their statements that they were making about the these key witnesses giving their like basically life stories about what it was like to be a gay man in history at this time, it was just like very backhanded and directly disrespectful. And in fact, in the meetings where they were all like these like really stiff collared umbrage looking people talking to each other about what they should do about the gay problem, instead of actually calling the people homosexuals and calling the prostitutes prostitutes, they switched out those words for the names of a of a biscuit brand, like a cookie brand, and said, instead of calling them homosexuals and prostitutes, we'll call them Huntley and Palmers. So they couldn't even say the fucking words <laughs> in the committee meetings. Honestly, not that long ago, because like I mentioned, the director and the screenwriter lived in this era when this report was coming out. But all that to say, this recommendation to decriminalize homosexuality came out in 1957, but the government didn't do shit about it until 1965, when finally there was a law passed that decriminalized homosexuality for consenting adults. And, you know, you know the story, generation of stigmatized trauma after that, and still to this day, having to fight tooth and nail for a normal life, but... Harry Styles in it. (laughs) Harry Styles is in it. (laughs) Wait, Lee, so do you know when the car was invented? I looked it up, 1908. 1908. Okay. Or the Model T. The Model T. Was that the first car? Yeah. Cars before that. I think that was. It's definitely like the first like uh, factory. Yeah. I'm just yeah like (laughs) consumer consumer vehicle. So he saw the rise of cars and gay cookies. (laughs) So back to Forrester, who my policeman is based off of. So Forrester was 86 when homosexuality was finally decriminalized. So he never really, he never had any public relationships with any men in his lifetime. But when he was 51 years old, he went to a party of one of his gay friends and met a young police officer named Bob Buckingham. And I would like to send you some pictures of these gentlemen. Please do, because when I hear about a police officer named Bob, it's not a good look. (laughs) 
Ah, okay. So Lizzie's showing me a picture of Forrester and Bob where Forrester is sat. He looks a, a bit older than Bob, I would say by a couple of decades, maybe even. And they're both in these like impeccable pinstripe suits. And Bob's got his knee up on the chair with his arm resting on his knee and then his hand resting on Forrester's shoulder. And they're like peering off somewhere. I mean, Bob really looks like James Bond. He's a very attractive man. Yeah, he is. I was hoping he wasn't as cute as this because I don't personally <laughs> like his character. <laughs> yeah, this this uh, portrait in particular got a lot of attention. The position of it kind of feels a little bit more intimate than just like a typical picture of two men at this time. Like, and the way that Bob is kind of leaning over Forrester and kind of like protecting him in this weird way. And Forrester is like a more timid feature in front of him kind of like reflects their relationship like Forrester was always like this more quiet intellectual type and to meet someone like Bob who was more like physically large and able to protect him like kind of like played into their dynamic I think this photo really exemplifies that and yeah Forrester's really attractive <laughs> what was their age difference I think it was like 20 years or so okay okay so in 1930 when he was 51 he met Bob and he wrote in his journal two years later I've been happy and would like to remind others that their turns can come too. It is the only message worth giving. And later he wrote, I am happier now than ever in my life. So they obviously had like a very close, intimate relationship. And even whenever Bob got married to a nurse named May, the two men continued their relationship. And, and actually their relationship kind of mirrors in a lot of ways how we see it unfold in the movie. May, who plays the Marion character in this kind of world, never really seemed to have a problem with this arrangement like she never sold him out to the police that was luckily a plot point that was just made for the novel version um but the three of them did kind of learn to share each other's time and share each other's space and later in life whenever Forrester was much older he did end up suffering a stroke he did end up moving into Bob and May's house and he actually died while he was in their care and then Whenever Bob passed away a couple years after Forrester, their ashes were spread together in a rose garden near the house. And so by the standards of this time, I think it's a pretty happy ending, pretty happy story. I'm mad because why did they write it like this then? Like, why did they have the beat where Marion turns Patrick into the police and he goes to jail and gets beaten for two years? Like, why did they put that in if even in real life that didn't happen? I'm upset. I don't like that whatsoever. Like, I understand it was hard and you had to be closeted and it was illegal to be gay. I get all of that. Mm -hmm. But if it didn't even happen in real life, what makes you put that in a story if they did live happily ever after? Like, he was cared for by his lover and his close friend until he died. Like, that's a beautiful picture. But in the film, Marion sells him out. He gets fucked up in prison for two years. He gets a stroke. He's brought back to Marion's house fucking Bob, or in this case, Tom, mm -hmm. doesn't want anything to do with him. Marion leaves Tom, and then finally he puts his hand on his shoulder and everything's okay. Like, fuck that, dude. Ugh. Yeah, it's definitely more bleak. And I guess to be clear, like, My Policeman is not meant to be like a biopic of this relationship. This relationship served as like the source, like the inspiration behind it. But there's enough similarities that it's like, why couldn't you just follow through with the positive similarities? I totally get that. And maybe it's, like, harking back to the realities that, like, you know, at the time that Bob and Forrester were, and May were able to, like, kind of make this triangle work, there were 
thousands of men in prison for the very same situation, I'm sure, at that time. So, you know, in Beth Ann Roberts' hands, she chose why she added so much more angst to this plot. I wouldn't call it angst. It's torture. It's fucked up. And like when you when like you're describing Forster's life, and it seems like you know their friendship, like him and May and Bob, you know, which is the friendship of Tom and Patrick and Marianne, lasted their whole lives, and it was never like in turmoil. Like it's it. I mean, I don't. You can't know personal details about people's lives like that. But I mean. She didn't know. Beth Ann didn't know. She had to speculate and she made it so fucked up. Like, I understand like fuel on the fire or like, you know, in the form of storytelling, but that's when you're telling a story that's been told a million times. Like this story of Bob Ann Forrester hadn't been told Mm -hmm. and was a very unique case because it had a happy ending. Yeah. So like, why fuck with that? Well, maybe she intended the ending to have like a bit of sweetness to it. Yeah, how does the ending read in the in the book? So the main difference between how the book is presented and the perspective of how the film is presented is that the book is written as Marion's letter to Patrick, kind of explaining her entire story with Tom and explaining herself to him and basically kind of asking for his forgiveness. And also we peek into Patrick's diaries of the 50s, starting the relationship with Tom going to prison and what that experience was like, which the prison experience of his in the book is not nearly so harsh as it's portrayed in the film. There's no, like, illusion of any direct violence against him. And, in fact, I think he's in prison for a shorter time. It's still traumatic, but it's not as, like, blatantly violent as it is in the movie. But at the end of the book, it's basically the same ending. Like, she leaves Tom with this letter being like, I hope you read this to Patrick and I hope you hear my confession because that's when she makes her confession about what she did to sell Patrick out. And she's like, I'm looking, I'm leaving to go find my own life and I hope that you and Patrick can like mend your life and continue forward how you can. So it's very, very similar. So with that, let's get into the plot. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm fucking pissed. This love... Is all consuming. I pity people who don't know what it feels like to be this in love. Come with me, just you and I. He's trying to destroy our marriage. Her hiding, her lies. You know nothing about being married to. Stop telling me what I'm supposed to think about it. He was always in your life, in our lives. Yo, this trailer got me so hyped. I'm not even going to fucking lie. I am I was so pissed at this movie. And then I watched this trailer and I was like, I want to see that movie. <laughs> yeah, the choice of Sea of Love is such like a sweet romantic song. Yeah. And like, no offense. I know it's like the olden timey times in the movie, but like they played some fucking like lame music. Like, Yeah, I do think that the music could have been punchier. And I don't even remember the score. That's probably rude to say, but... (laughs) No, no, it's okay. There's a lot of things that were lost on me. Like, we're, we're like, talking about how Gen Z is, like, changing audiences. And, like, you know, maybe older people have a certain appreciation for stuff. I'm like, why does this music sound old, you know? (laughs) It's like they're listening to in the 50s. But, I mean, there were some things that took me out of it when it came to, like, characterization and, like, voice. Like, Harry Styles' voice sounded like a 
His accent sounded strange, but then I heard the older version of his accent and they matched perfectly. Like it sounded like the same exact voice. So I think that was done really well. But they were saying some stuff that sounded hella corny to me. Yeah, some of the lines were a little cheesy, huh? It's like, we're in the 1950s and now even... <laughs> there's not even a British accent. I feel like less is more when it comes to period pieces. Like sometimes when you do these like big sweeping shots, I'm just so caught up in the fact that I'm like, where did they get all those period cars? And they and- keep making nods like, did you hear that new Ella Fitzgerald track? Like not in this movie, but they like they do stuff That's like that. That's so Elvis, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. I'm oh. just like, oh my God. Yeah, we know what time period it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, watching the trailer back, I'm kind of like remembering that there are so many scenes in this movie I did like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the trailer looks really epic and it's like the trailer is really well paced and it seems, I don't know, like a lot different like so like it seems like another movie like I was saying yeah it seems more like a romance but I mean this movie is really romantic and you're talking about how the ending like didn't really satisfy you it didn't at all I hate it Sorry. so did you cry <laughs> See so how that's did you important. cry <laughs> <laughs> it's simple yes or no I'm trying to remember what part I cried out exactly what was it what's the part that everyone cried what is it what's this part We'll get to it. I'll make you fucking cry at the end. Bitch. You can't. <sighs> All right. So this film goes back and forth between the lives of Patrick, Marion, and Tom in the years 1957 and 1999. And we start our story in 1999. Policeman Tom is played by Linus Roach. His wife, Marion, is played by Gina McKee. And his ex-lover, Patrick, is played by Rupert Everett. Not just Rupert Everett. You'll hear us gassing up this man in our My Best Friend's Wedding episode. He plays uh, Julia Roberts' best friend, George. Done so much for cinema. The moment I wake up. (laughs) Before I put on my makeup. I say a little prep for you. Forever and ever, you stay in my heart and I will love you forever. So I did not... No, that was, like, I didn't connect the name with the actor with George until, like, way deep in my my research. No, okay. I, I love him as George in My Best Friend's Wedding, but I think the most I've seen of him actually was Dunstan Checks In. I've never seen that. Lee, have you seen Dunstan Checks In? That's the one with the orangutan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Can you explain this movie, Lee? I forget that's who Rupert Everett is. I'm just going off the title here, but it's like a hotel in which a uh, orangutan is involved. Like, there's a kid, obviously, but there's like an orangutan in a hotel. Yeah, I I used to had that on VHS, and yeah. it, it's a children's movie, obviously, even though Rupert Everett is in it. But it's like this kid goes to this hotel, and he Rupert Everett like has this monkey who he's like. I guess, abusing for, like, money to make him, like, perform or something. I think it's not dissimilar to, like, Air Bud, you know, uh, how, like, the clown has the dog. Yeah. And so the kid, like, tries to free the monkey or something, and it's this whole thing. But Rupert Everett is, like, the villain. Is he a queer-coded villain? Yes. He has, like, a very, like, he has, like, a chest of drawers with, like, immaculate clothing. Mm, so Little neck scarves. <laughs> when I saw him, he comes in, like, you know, He's just had a stroke, and he looks, like, totally different than how I remember him And Dunstan checks in. And I go, oh, my God, is that? And Lizzie was like, mm-hmm. He says, like, literally one word in this entire movie 
playing Patrick because he's bedridden and has a stroke, can't speak. And I was feeling the most with him than probably any other character. Possibly younger Patrick, played by David Dawson, was also making me feel as much. Yeah. But he was really turning it out by doing the least <laughs> amount of action. Yeah. No, absolutely. He asked, like, for a cigarette, and I was like, you work. I feel that. <laughs> I was, like, hitting my jewel, and I'm like, let him have a cigarette. <laughs> Dude, give him a cigarette. Like, how much worse can it get? His lover won't look at him. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, yeah. So, Tom and Marion are a married couple in their 60s. They're living retired outside of Brighton, which is on the sea. Um, Patrick, who has suffered a stroke, has come to live with them at Marion's insistence, and she's the one that takes care of him because Tom refuses to fucking acknowledge him at all. And that was one thing I had a hard time, like, rectifying in my head. Like, I guess the idea is that he's just so, like, shoved down the past and refuses to talk about it that he can't even, like, go into this man's room which I, I did not like. Well, it's another problem with, like, the reality being much nicer than the fiction in this case. Like, they, it seems like from from the real life, like, Forrester's perspective, they, like, op- like welcomed him with open arms and cared for him until he unfortunately, like, passed away. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. I'm mad. <laughs> I'm mad. I don't like it. So then we go back to the summer of, 50, of 1957, um, where we meet our three characters in their younger versions. Tom the Policeman is played by Harry Styles. Marion is played by Emma Curran. And Patrick is played by David Dawson. And I gotta tell you, these trio were really doing it for me. Like, anytime all three of them were together on screen, or Tom and Patrick's characters were together on screen, I was like, let's go. I When they were together, all three of them, I understood the chemistry was good, but it was so corny. Everything they said... <laughs> Oh, you dig a deep day in the bibbly bops. It's 1950. Like, I was like, oh, God, fucking. I mean, I wish, I wish the scenes were available. It just came out, so there's no way we could get clips. I know. But if you are remembering this film, or for some reason you're listening and you haven't seen it, there's a scene where they're like chatting over dinner, and it has to be some of the corniest dialogue I've ever heard that was basically just like, we are British. It is 1950. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They definitely are like, oh, you've never been to Venice. And they're like talking about art. I always kind of roll my eyes whenever characters in a movie are like, oh, well, you're just so interested in art. It yeah. It doesn't really ring true. But that does mimic the relationship that the real Forrester and Bob seem to have. Like Forrester was a novelist and really connected with all these intellectuals. You know, he was fucking friends with Virginia Woolf. And Bob was just like a blue-collar policeman and his wife was just a blue-collar nurse. So they kind of had access to this world of intelligent conversation and art and money through Forrester. And it is the exact same with Patrick. He's kind of like their foray into the museum world, and he takes them to opera, takes them to theater and concerts, and they have a gay old time. I leaned over to Lizzie. There's, like, one scene where Patrick is, like, they're in front of this, like, I want to say gazebo. God, I sound like (laughs) such a fucking idiot. Uh, But, like, what would you call that? It's like a stone monument. marble, yeah, like a fixture. Yeah, and Patrick's character is like, ah, this was, you know, created in the something era with stone from the blah de blah And I was like, you know how easy it must have been to sound so fucking smart? Because no one can fact check you, yeah. you know? Like you could just be spouting at the mouth. And it kind of makes sense like when you watch the movie The Master and you're like, how are people going along with this guy? It's like no one can fucking tell 
the no. difference when like people pretend to be smart before the internet. Exactly. Though you know Patrick's not faking it. He know knows everything down to the date. I know he's not, but they they could bear to be a little more incredulous. Yeah. No, they they eat it all up. <laughs> so Marion meets Tom and she's instantly infatuated. And Marion herself is a school teacher, and that's only important to the story because we get to meet her friend and fellow teacher, Julia. Let's go, Julia. You're a bad bitch. I love Julia. Mm-hmm. Okay, this actress is amazing. Her name is Freya Mavor. I haven't personally seen her in anything else, but she is so stunningly beautiful. Yeah, geez. And she looks a lot like Velma. Yes, she was serving Velma in those glasses, and God bless her for just, like, throwing it back at Marion. I yeah. appreciate that. And a great character, too. Like, uh, Julia is a character in the book that whenever I was reading the book, I was like, oh, they're probably going to cut this character out in the movie because it's not, like, technically 100% essential to the plot. Like, they could find out other ways to bring that character's notes in. But no, girl, she was there. And we'll come back to me. We'll come back to Julia because she's the only one that <laughs> really knows 100% what's going on here. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, Tom meets Marion. They start dating. And he one day brings her to the local art museum to meet Patrick, his friend. Just a simple friend. The friend I read books and talk about art with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's what it's called. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so that's when we get like the scene talking in a bar about how 1950s and 1950s are with British people. <laughs> and they have like a little throuple relationship kind of going. Um, and so we continued this like flashing back and forth between 1957, 1999. And this whole time, Tom and Marianne have barely like touched hands. He kisses her like once and then immediately proposes to her. <laughs> Which I don't know if that was like standard practice for the 1950s, but I feel like if my boyfriend was being that chaste, I'd be like, I mean, what's his name? Dude, Marianne is as thick as rock. In this fucking movie. I mean, I hope the character in the book is a little more, like, keen. But, God, you have to be... And I didn't even feel willingly delusional because she does find out eventually. And it is kind of a complete surprise to her. So I'm like, come on, bitch. Open your fucking eyes. Fucking Julia knows and she met you, like, last week. Oh, my God, no. In the book, she kind of is portrayed... Basically the exact same way. And Julia in the book at one point, like, turns to her whenever Marion is, like, bemoaning that her husband is off in Venice with Patrick. Julia says to Marion, really, Marion, you have to open your eyes. You're too bright not to. It's such a waste. So I do think that Marion is a product of her time. Like, she probably has not even heard the word homosexual, like, ever said out loud. But at the same time, she has to have her doubts. I mean, like... The first night of their honeymoon, Patrick rocks up in his little Fiat with, like, Veuve Clicquot and smoked salmon and is like, hi, honey, I'm here to cook <laughs> dinner for y'all. And I'm like, just just be a little bit more aware. Yeah, if your husband is more excited to see your friend than, like, have sex with you on your honeymoon, nah, I don't, I don't know if that's a product of 1950s. <laughs> yeah, I think she's so blinded by how much she truly wants to have sex with Tom. And one interesting thing in, that they dive into in the book that they don't really bring into the movie is that so Patrick's urges she often refers to them as like unnatural acts you know that's kind of a way to like offhand refer to two men having sex unnatural acts but she also says on her honeymoon night like in her head she's like paralyzed to even like make the first move towards Tom her now husband for fear that a sexual wife is seen as unnatural and that exact same word is used so there's this like idea that 
sure, Patrick is repressed because he has to be. And she's repressed as well because I guess she also has to be because that's women were not allowed to have any sort of sexual feelings in any way. Um, whereas I think it's interesting that Julia, who admits to having a partner um, herself, because Julia's a lesbian, has more love and freedom than she does with her own husband. And it's just like this idea of repression in this society is just like just ghosts with everyone yeah like the only sexually free people in this film are the gay people well it's like a triangle like you could have a public relationship like have sex or be happy yeah you know like there's like one <laughs> two maybe like marianne is like have a public relationship maybe is happy but like she's not having sex or yeah. no she's having a public relationship and she's i guess having kind of sex, technically but she's not happy and then like Tom and Patrick and Patrick are like having sex and happy, but they can't have this public yeah. relationship. And Julia's the same, I guess. Julia's like, I don't need a public relationship <laughs> if I'm not doing what y'all are doing. That shit's so fucking weird. Well, what was interesting about like the laws in the UK about homosexuality is that they only extended to men. They didn't apply to women at all. <laughs> that's so hilarious that people are like, that's not sex. It's <laughs> like, we women, don't know what that is. Women don't want to have sex with each other. They like literally could not conceive it. They didn't even want to say the words out loud to put it into law. Uh, that's hilarious. I know. So Julia got get away scot-free in this. So back in 1999, older Marion finds Patrick's diaries and from the 1950s and starts to read them. And we finally get the most interesting part of the movie to me, which is Patrick's perspective and oh, his absolutely. relationship with Tom. So we see their meet cute. We see like their first date, which is kind of given under this guise that Patrick wants to draw Tom for a portrait. And there's a really great scene. Okay. I really like the moment I love the most in this film happens kind of in Patrick and Tom's first night hanging out together in Patrick's apartment. Hanging out is what you can call that's it. That's what you call it, dude. That's what you call it. Someone got sucked off. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Tom's at Patrick's house. It's late in the night. They've had their portrait drawing session and they've had a couple of scotches and they're kind of leaning back on the couch. Do you remember this moment? Ah, yep. And they're kind of just talking and Patrick's leaning back and Tom kind of has his arm outstretched on the back of the couch and there's a single moment where Tom allows a single fingertip to rest on Patrick's neck. Sam, I'd like you to read this scene's passage in the book just to kind of get us in the mood. Lizzie has a note card above it that says, first touch. It always reminds me of that fucking shot in Pride and Prejudice, you know, where... The hand. Yeah. Tom uh, Lomscams. Tom Lomscams. <laughs> yes, exactly. Sorry, you get to the shot. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay. <clears> hmm. <throat> And then his fingertips grazed my neck. Still, I did not look at him. I let my eyes glaze over, and the reflection of the room in the window warped into a soft mass of light and dark. It all warped, the whole room, into the feeling of my policeman's fingers in my hair. He was holding the back of my neck now, cradling it, and I wanted to let my head rest there in his large, capable hand. His touch was firm, surprisingly sure, but when I finally turned to look at him, his face was pale, his breathing quick. So, yeah, and then Patrick sucks off Tom. <laughs> um, yeah, I I really like the intimacy of these two characters in this film. I, I really enjoyed how it was shot, how it was performed. And one of the first credits you see in the rolling credits at the end is the name of the intimacy coordinator. Yeah. Who, like I mentioned earlier, is a gay man. He's also a dance choreographer Ooh. and has worked with um, Michael Grandage, the director, before. 
But I think that the way that this scene and then the subsequent sex scene that happens next are filmed, really not not many notes. I, I was in it. I was enveloped. I think in those moments, everything was done right. I think the chemistry between these two characters was great. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Like the the intimacy was fantastic. Those scenes, I appreciate they they didn't do the like door shuts and we have to understand what went on, which you see in some, you see mostly in like television when they add like a gay character, they like, and they kiss and then the lights turn off mm-hmm. and we know they have gay sex. And they didn't go full deep end, blue as warm as color style. Um, they had like a nice entrance into the scene. You got a peek into their like physical chemistry, but you didn't stay for too long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciated that. Yeah. The only thing I did not like is, did you remember, there was a couple of shots that were reflections, like, in a mirror behind the characters in the room. I absolutely remember that. I was like, why are we doing this? I hated that. That, as, like, a storytelling tool, implies that, like, us as an audience can't look directly at something. Right. I didn't like that at all. And it wasn't necessary because they had the shots, other than those, to support Mm -hmm. the intimacy of that scene. And it didn't feel awkward to me. And I... I was in it with the characters, and in contrast to whenever Tom has sex with Marion on their honeymoon night, like, there's way more pleasure being exchanged between the two. We get to see both of them, like, kind of overcome in their own moments and kind of moving together, whereas with Marion, there's not much pleasure there. Um, So I I really didn't like that we kind of had to, like, be this voyeur for a second. It felt really weird. I was like, wait, wait, whose eyes am I seeing through now? Yeah, I mean— Shout out to Jennifer's body, who was like, if they're going to kiss, we're going on a fucking micro. We're, we're seeing the saliva in their mouths, mm-hmm. whereas this movie is like, ew. Yeah. And I know it's directed by a gay man. I know he himself and everyone on the team wouldn't be grossed out by this, but it almost implies that they assume the audience would be. Like they need to back off for a second. Yeah. And it's like, fuck that. Yeah. If they feel weird about it, they can fucking get over it. If the audience member is, like, surprised that this is happening, like, one, (laughs) did they not know what this movie was? It reminds me of when Lizzie and I went to see A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I was just about to tell this story. Yes. (laughs) We were sat in the theater, and (laughs) there was this old couple who was sat, like, towards the front, and their, like, flip phones were going (laughs) off, like, all through the commercials, and they were just talking at full volume and being, like, really annoying audience members. And then the film started, and they, you know, it's in French, and they started speaking to each other, and the guy goes, ugh, French? I lost my damn mind. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, dude. You're in for a wild two hours, sir. Just wait until we get into the meat of this film. Wait till you get to the case. (laughs) Straight oh, up. Yeah, if anything, <laughs> you know what you're getting into with this movie. Yeah. Boys are going to kiss. Yeah. I was thinking of a time when I was went to watch uh, this movie Match Point, um, which is, I think it's an American film, but it was like set in London or something. And I like, I, I like brought it to my friend's house and we we're going to watch it. And as soon as it started, he was like, because they all have British accents. He's like, wait, are they like, are they British in this whole movie? <laughs> American at any point. I didn't not, prepare not myself the, <laughs> to, for them to be British. Yeah, not even that it was like there's you know, you don't need subtitles, it's in English, but he just didn't like the accent. <laughs> he would hate this movie. He would fucking hate this movie. Oh man. So after this, Tom and Patrick kind of begin this little dance of bringing Marion into their relationship as kind of like the third piece to keep this all kosher. 
So yeah, after Tom and Marion get married uh, at the honeymoon cottage, when I mentioned Patrick came and crashed the party, they kind of have like a fight that evening and Marion catches them making up the next morning, kind of like holding each other in the shed and fucking finally it clicks with her. She has to like see it to understand it. But that kind of like opens up this big well of resentment with her and it all comes to a head whenever... Patrick invites Tom to Venice with him under the guise of a work trip, and they send her a postcard while they're away, and she is just, like, totally overtaken with, I mean, a number of things. Jealousy, resentment, humiliation, malice. But I don't really want to gloss over the Venice stuff so easily because it is, like, a really beautiful series of scenes where apparently, I guess, in Italy at this time, you as a gay person could go and be like outwardly affectionate with your partner with fe- without fear of being penalized so maybe it was maybe it was legal at that time and uh, it really reminded me of call me by your name you know how they get that one weekend in rome mm-hmm. this is like their one weekend in rome and and just like in call me by your name this is like the last time they ever touch until 1999 oh big sad dude super sad so yeah soon after this venice trip patrick is arrested Someone has tipped him off to the police. We know. We fucking know. Yeah, I mean, you called it. Lizzie, I mean, everyone would know. Lizzie yeah. in the theater was like, it's handled a little bit differently in the book. Like, it's more of a reveal. But, like, as an audience member watching this movie, it's like, yeah, no shit. Duh, it's her. Yeah. How was it handled in the book? It was, so like I said, um, a lot of the book is Marion kind of writing this letter to Patrick, explaining herself and her actions and part of that is her confession to him because it's it's not really alluded to because there's more characters in the book. Like there's his boss, his secretary, other lovers he's been with. Like there's more culprits that it could be. And you really don't know. I was shocked whenever I read it. Um, and so sh- her confession to him uh, was a really poignant moment in the book. Because like basically the whole letter is to like explain why she did that and to apologize for like her role and how like their life played out. Yeah. Even though... It's not really her fault. I mean, like, we're all yeah, looking. Yeah, it is. Is it, though? Like, it's society's fault, ultimately. No, it's her fault. It is society's fault, but, like. I really do think, like, we look for someone to blame, and Marion has done the most actionable. But what she, about Tom? He never stood up for Patrick. She went to trial, even, to try to mm-mm. provide a character witness. No, fuck that. No, no. She can't make it better when she realized what she's done is, like, putting his life in jeopardy and taking like stealing two years of someone's life is not like a little oops I'm sorry let me go to trial and try to make it better and of course Tom can't say anything because then he's going to prison too and like I'm and they had all of the journals anything they would have said wouldn't have mattered anyways I fucking hate Marion I know that the society is terrible society has always been terrible for people of minorities and I don't give a fuck. Marion sucks major ass. Yeah, she's not really given a lot of good qualities to stand on. So yeah, Patrick is arrested. He goes to jail for two years. He is beaten. He has no one in his life anymore. So fucking sad. And Tom chooses to kind of just like pretend it never happened to wash Patrick out of his life. And the next time he sees him is when Marion is moving him in in 1999, 40 years later. And at the end of the film, uh, Marion in 1999 has reached a breaking point in their silence. She packs her bags and tells Tom she's leaving. 
She makes her confession that she wrote a letter that got Patrick in trouble and that she's been trying to make up for it every day since. She says she's lonely. She says she's feel like she's wasted her life. And Tom begs her to stay, but she leaves anyway, leaving Patrick and Tom alone for the first time since Venice. And the final shot of the film, or one of the final shots of the film, we see Tom finally alone in his house. Marion has gone, and he's able to approach Patrick himself, lean down, and give him an embrace. And we see that it's young Tom, Harry Styles, leaning down to place a kiss on Rupert Everett's head. And I will say this... This shot really did get me. I don't know why. It's kind of cheesy, like, the idea of switching out the young uh, actor to kind of show, like, oh, this is the the embrace he's been wishing for. But Rupert Everett's face at this moment really, really did it for me. And I, I cried both times and when I read it in the book. I did <laughs> so, cry. I, I yeah. did cry. I freaking knew it. It was, it was good. And they do similar – it's not the first time we see them do a, a shot like that in the film. They do it with um, Marianne um, earlier when she's, like, caring for Patrick. So it didn't seem too heavy-handed. They didn't, like, try it out for the first time at the very end. I want to be super clear. I don't dislike this film because I dislike what happens in the film. Obviously, I dislike what happens in the film. I dislike what happens in a lot of films. Brokeback Mountain, Boys Don't Cry, yet those, I believe, are good films. I can't even confidently say I dislike this film, but I want to be very clear that like my dislike for these characters and my dislike for the events don't necessarily like determine whether or not I think this is a good film. I think for as many scenes and for the length of time of this film, we don't hit the emotional beats that I think we need to like, we're not sure who to care about. We're not sure who's in the wrong, who's in the right. And and to be honest, maybe that's, like, the point of the film, that there are no black and white situations in this film. Like, people fuck up. No one's made I, the right choices. Um, no one's made all wrong choices. It's kind of like a mix all across the board. I disagree. I think we know who's in the wrong and who's in the right. I don't think there's, like, a shadow of doubt. I think they've all committed wrong. Okay. Tom, Marianne. Bad people. Patrick allowed Marion to be used as well and was cheating on her with Tom without he saying was, anything. He had no... Wait, who? Patrick? Patrick, Patrick wasn't cheating on Marion. Patrick was cheating with Tom on Marion and, like, he's pretending to be her friend so that they look more straight. But you're saying society. I mean, what is Patrick left to do? He didn't have a choice. He can't stop Tom from marrying... And that is Tom's cross to bear. That is Tom's relationship to respect or not respect. He's choosing not to respect it. But Patrick is going to be living in shadows for, you know, however long. He he can't be sure. All of his relationships are going to be like torrid and private. So I don't, I don't think it's safe to say like, we don't know who's wrong, who's right. It's like definitely Marianne and Tom suck eggs. Do you not feel that way? Again, like I do see how their situation in this time could lead them to make these choices. So I don't say it's, like, excusable, and I don't say that I like them as characters. I do say it's complicated. Like, I think I went into it with a lot of empathy for Marion, and not for Tom. Tom's pretty straightforward, like, a selfish and cowardly character. But but I do also see, like, the amount of pressure they're under. Yeah. And what else are they to do? Like, she can't even talk about how she wants to have sex with her own husband. How is she to understand anything more complicated than that? I think 
Yeah, I think that as a person who's just seen the film, which is likely going to be the majority of Most its audience, yeah. you know, because with Harry Styles, I think you leave the film being like, wow, I didn't really like anyone. I may be like Patrick. And I super liked that minor character that was a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> Julia's great. Yeah. Yeah, I have a feeling that's how a lot of the reviews are turning out. And we can just go right into the reception. Usually I would talk about budget, but none of that information has been released at this point. But most of the reviews that I had access to to read, it seems like most people that liked the film were like young women who probably like Harry Styles. Most of the people who don't like the film were people with like Reservoir Dogs in their top four on Letterboxd, <laughs> if that indicates anything. So I think you're right. I think a lot of people are going to come to this film because of Harry Styles and their opinion on how well he did is going to determine what they think of the film. I'm really curious. I listened to a couple of reviews on YouTube of queer people, gay men reviewing this film, and they're saying a lot of what we're saying, like, it doesn't quite hit all the way. You know, some of them are saying that they wanted to hear more of Marion and were more, like, feeling for her in the end because she was kind of being lied to her whole life. It's a polarizing movie, and it's going to cause for a lot of conversation, and I'm just curious to see where that continues to go. Yeah. Um, I do wish, like, I, you know, you're saying a lot of people ask for more Marion and, like, I don't want to dislike this character. I really don't. But the film has kind of made me. But I do wish, with, like, with that being said, I do wish that the pacing of the flashbacks started much sooner. Yeah, The first, like, 30 minutes is them just, like, living in a sleepy town. And you don't know who the characters are yet. So you don't understand what their actions mean. And also the first time we see Patrick is, like, so quick and, like, without any preamble. Like, I feel like that should be an important moment. Like, the first time they all come together. Yeah. You know, we go to the flashbacks from, you know, Patrick's perspective of his diaries. And we get a little more insight into that point. But, yeah, it was lackluster and slow. I will say the movie overall is very slow. Yeah. And they could have – usually I would say, like, I cut 30 minutes. But – then I don't know what substance would be there. I would probably just say, like, put a little bit more substance in. Yeah. Um, put more in and then quicken the pace in the front. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, all right. So I think we reached the end. Let's score it. Let's score this. How the subtextual score works is we judge the movie on how good is it and how gay is it. We get an overall score out of 10. So, Sam, on a scale of 1 to 10, how good is this movie? It's been days and I still don't know how I feel about it. Um, I would never watch it again. And I don't think that there's anything done in this film that hasn't been done better before. Rupert Everett is in it. And it is shot well. I'll give it a three. Three? I'll give it a four and a half. And Sam, on a scale of one to ten, how gay is it? Um, ten. Yeah. Really can't get much gayer. <laughs> it's fraught with sadness, so yeah. it must be a gay period Lots piece. of gay sex, which I do appreciate. So this film has a subtextual score of 6.88. That is surprisingly high to me. Well, it's got gay sex in it. <sighs> God, yeah. that'll You make more movies with gay sex, and they'll be right at the top of the list. To be honest, I'll go see, like, any miserably sad gay movie. Like, I just... I ha like I watched Supernova. Like, do I hate myself? It's like the saddest movie of all time. <laughs> yeah, it's like this is my comfort movie. <laughs> it's like the world's saddest film. I paid money to see this twice in theaters. It just goes to show the lengths we'll go to. Yeah. Oh man. Well, 
maybe next week I'll do something less sad. No promises, though. No, I mean, <laughs> I am not holding my breath. <laughs> what is the saddest movie you've covered so far? Probably Girl Interrupted. Spencer I've... was sad. Spencer was sad. Spencer was sad. It wasn't as sad as this. No, this is sadder. Yeah. Take the cake every time. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. Um, if you have seen this film recently, you're planning to watch it, drop us a line on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. Let us know what you think. Roast it. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah, we'll see you Harry Styles lovers. Uh, probably never. <laughs> I tore this film to shit. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to keep this content ad-free, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash subtextualpod. See you next week.